In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. I have an incredible guest here with me today. Paul, how are you? I am great. Thank you, Pamela. I'm doing great. Just a little bit bad. It is truly an honor to have you here today, Paul. You are incredible. You have done some remarkable things in, in your life and you've got more and more coming, which is so exciting. And I'm so excited to talk about it. But, you know, the first question that I always start with is what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? Loaded question. I know. <laughs> what inspired me I mean I guess when I was at school I wasn't thinking I'll, I'll be a, a motivational speaker performance coach and write books I wanted to be an actor or a journalist and so I guess what inspired me on my journey was I was very I'm pretty self-aware and one of the things I'm very aware of is I just wasn't good at a lot of things but give me an opportunity to speak Give me an opportunity to be the center of attention. And all of a sudden, McGee comes alive. Put me on a, a soccer pitch, a basketball court, anything else. And I'll tell you what, I make other people, I raise other people's self-esteem because I make everyone else look good when they're against me. But when it came to acting, when it came to public speaking, I suddenly thought, you know what? I found my sweet spot here. And um, I've had a very, very varied background. I, I, as a student during my summer holidays, I used to clean toilets in the city centre in Manchester. I've worked as a bank clerk. I've worked in a, well, in a hamburger factory, managing 30 women making cheap hamburgers. That was an interesting experience. I still got the emotional scars. I've been a probation officer. I've worked with criminals. I've been in some of the top security prisons in the UK. I've lost my job through ill health with chronic fatigue syndrome. I think you call it in the in the US CFS. It's been an interesting journey. I ran away from home at the age of 10. I'd had four different schools and four different father figures by the time I was nine. So it's been colourful to say the least but I've been married 34 years. And someone said, what, to the same woman? I went, yeah, 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 not to several different women, right? She has been a rock in my life. She really has. My life is full of roller coasters, both work and personally, but it's still exciting. And you know what, Pamela? It's still a privilege to be on this planet. I remind myself every day, you know, 100 billion people, homo sapiens have walked this planet, 100 billion there's close to 8 billion alive at the moment. So 92 billion people have walked before us on this planet. And those of us alive today have never had so many opportunities, despite the pandemic, despite all the things we hear about. Life is amazing. It's an adventure. It's an absolute privilege. And I want to make the most of my time here. You are incredible. And it is a privilege to have you here, Paul. I love your insight and I love your story. And I can't wait to dig into it a little bit. 
Now, first question is, you mentioned you wanted to be an actor when you grew up. I was going to ask you, when you were a kid, what did you want to be? Do you know what I really wanted? And I've only had an insight about this recently. I wanted to be famous. Mm. And, I, and the only thing that I, could, I thought could make me famous was acting. And so it wasn't so much, you know, well, what kind of actor? I just thought, hey, I'd like to be famous. And that was when I was, I don't know, six, seven or eight. But what I've realised, and maybe I've given you hints to that already, what I realise now as someone who's 56 years old is it wasn't that I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be loved. I wanted love. I wanted, yeah, some kind of recognition, not, not on a stage in, in lights. I just wanted a recognition of who I am. I wanted to feel loved and feel, yeah, a sense of I belong. And, and also maybe not just to feel loved because I've achieved, but just be loved. Here's Paul McGee with all his flaws, all his failings. And yeah, he's still got some good stuff as well. And, and just be loved. And, you know, I, I still look for opportunities to not to, to become famous, but I, I do still want to influence people. I think I've got a few things to say. I've written 13 books and one of those books became a Sunday Times bestseller, which is the equivalent of a New, New York Times bestseller. Um, you know, I've worked with some amazing people and I just feel in these 56 years, I've stumbled on some stuff that's good. I've searched for stuff that's helpful. And you kind of think, well, what's your gift, Paul? You, you know, the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of your life is to give your gift away. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of what I'm working at, really. I love that, Paul. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I definitely want to get into your books because you're just incredible. 13. That's amazing. And then a Sunday bestseller. That's that's even more incredible that it got to that level. Now you had talked about your childhood a little bit. And the only reason I bring this up is because I'm sure that there's people listening that can relate or know somebody who can relate that maybe they could be going through a similar situation. So if you could talk about your experience a little bit, you know, growing up, because you had mentioned four father figures by the time you were nine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, um, you know, it's still not a pleasant avenue to explore if I'm really honest with you and and I think there was a combination of violence there was a psychological abuse from one of my stepfathers and from a real father is harmless but just general indifference and lack of engagement and I'm of those four father figures you know my, my father is still alive we have a relationship still but, you know, I lost contact with one. One passed away last year. It was a combination of different things, really. And But I suppose at the time when you're growing up, you don't know anything different. But I'll tell you what, I use this metaphor at times. Life is a game of snakes and ladders. I don't know if you play that game in the US. Mm -hmm. and, and But sometimes you land on a snake. And, and I guess one of the things I've learned is you don't quit the game. You keep looking for the ladders, you know, in a sense, you take another role, which sometimes means roll up your sleeves, whether that's in work or in your personal life. And I was also fortunate because despite, you know, indifferent to highly abusive father figures, I, um, I had two grandmothers who were amazing. You know, my dad's mum and my mum's mum were fantastic. My mum did the best she could as well. She always believed in me. Uh, but she was going through some big challenges. And I did have one male role model, if you can call him that, an uncle who was pretty good. But I was devoid of a lot of male, positive male input. And maybe some of why I'm, 
you know, we talk about without trying to get into gender identity here, but we talk about with all whatever our gender is or however we identify that we can have a masculine side and a feminine side. And I got very okay with my feminine side, being able to talk about feelings, being and maybe some of the stuff that we sometimes attribute to as you know, again without generalizing right. um, certain feminine traits that I, I kind of embrace those. And a lot of the work that I've done, like when I try, when I was doing my degree, um, there was about 25 people on my course and 20 of them were women. Mm. And, and I do a lot of work in the HR world. And again, it's very heavy laden in the UK with a lot of women. And I do work in education and the National Health Service. I don't know, I just really, as a guy, felt comfortable under trying to understand and explore my feelings and, um, you know, then look for just hopefully creative and engaging ways to communicate the ideas and insights that I've been learning. I love that, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, because I mean, it's just as positive and as incredible as you are. I would have never thought that you've been through something like that in your past and, you know, how it shaped you and how, you know, helped you pull forward, but it explains it, that you had these beautiful feminine figures who came in and it helped you sort of navigate out of that, which is incredible, which is absolutely incredible and kind of redefining the standard of masculinity, which I think, you know, I mean, our, our society has a toxic masculinity is everywhere, the macho man and, and all of these things. And, and you touched on a little bit when sharing your story that you had different career paths which seemed very, very polar opposite. You walked me through your career a little bit and what was like your first job? Okay. I was the first kid to even do what we call A-levels. So between the age of 16 and 18 in the UK, you can go on to do these advanced qualifications. They call them A-levels. No one in my, my family had ever got any kind of qualifications. So I managed to get some. And I wanted to become an, an actor. I wanted to go to drama school. But my, my stepfather at the time basically convinced my mom it was a bad idea. He was homophobic. He said that it's, it's only homosexuals become actors. And it's it was just toxicity at a kind of extreme level. Yeah. And so my mum was very much influenced, stroke manipulated by him. And, and she said, you know what? I've always dreamed that you'd work in a bank. I'd feel so proud I'd to tell people my son works in a bank. And so I was suddenly pushed down this line of trying to become a bank clerk. And the thing is, Pamela, which am I, I think there'll be people who've interviewed people in the past. And one of the things I'm skilled at, which is not always positive, is I can convince myself I want to do something even when I don't. And I was, I don't know if you can understand this phrase, I was good at being interviewed. So when someone goes, so why do you want to be a bank clerk? I didn't go, well, I've always dreamed that I'd become a bank clerk. And, and, and you know, but... But neither did I say, well, I don't. I want to be I want to be an actor. So I just went, well, I did, you know. And so I ended up being a bank clerk. This is no exaggeration. On on week two of my job, in my lunch hour, I'm, I'm phoning up organisations to try and arrange job interviews. It was horrendous. No offence people who work in a bank, but it's clear that Paul McGee was not put on this planet to work in a bank. I go <laughs> to university. I do a degree which incorporates behavioral and social psychology. I'm basically a social scientist by training. And as part of my degree, I train to work with criminals. We call the, the job in the UK a probation officer. Yeah. So um, that's where I'd go and visit prisons. And also, I also worked in a hospice with terminally ill cancer patients just for a few weeks. Again, as experience. But during my summer holidays, I did a variety of different jobs, one of which was 
was one of my roles was cleaning the toilets in the YMCA in Manchester. Get my degree, decide I don't want to be a probation officer and I don't want to be a toilet cleaner. No offence to toilet cleaners. And, and I get a job working for a big multinational called Birdseye, you know, frozen food manufacturer. And I work in HR. And part of what they do is get me managing 30 women who make the cheap hamburgers. And, um, and then within a year of that job, I became ill with this virus, with this chronic fatigue syndrome. But in the, in the UK, a lot of skepticism around it. People thought it wasn't a genuine illness. My own doctor sent me to see a psychiatrist. And um, that was not an easy experience because I knew, I mean, I could not walk 20 yards without collapsing at times. I was so weak at one stage. My wife would wash me. Sometimes she'd say, do you want tea or coffee? And I'd kind of go, oh, I just can't process that question. But I'd have good days, I'd have bad days. And the reason people go, oh, I've never had your courage to become an entrepreneur and a business person. But then the reason I became, started to run my own business was after three years of being ill, I became, I got to the point where I'm thinking, I'm improving. I'm not fully recovered, but I'm improving. So I wanted to get myself a little part-time job, you know, maybe two hours a day doing something very basic and, and menial, but it would just give me a sense of purpose and dignity. No one would hire me because I couldn't pass a medical. So in 1991, I hired myself. Pamela, I was amazing at the interview. I was a standout candidate. And I even passed my own medical. And that was 30 years ago. And, and here we are now. I'm still standing, as Elton John would say. Paul, you're unreal. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Well, like, I mean, I just love the diversification of everything that you've gone through. You know, it's just, it's so different and unique and the journey is just beautiful. And, and I'm glad that you invested in yourself. Yeah. And in fact, and one of the things that I did, it's interesting you just use that phrase invested in yourself, because when I became self-employed, I literally, you know, I'm trying to then sell training to business, to companies. And it's like, you know, you toilet cleaner stuff, that's not going to give you a lot of credibility, less than a year working with a big multinational, you'd worked as a bank clerk and you'd failed at that. You know, I didn't have a lot to play with, but to which I'm always thankful for my American friends, people like Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn. I'd start to listen to Zig Ziglar said that your car is a university on wheels. And just to sort of like age myself here, cassette tapes, I just had them, I was consuming them everywhere I drove. I'm listening to cassette tapes. Jim Rohn said, work hard on your job, work harder on yourself. And do you know what? I took that so seriously. I thought, I don't have an amazing backstory in terms of, you know, I'm going to be a motivational speaker. I've not, you know, been a, a successful entrepreneur like you and many of your listeners. And, and my first year of business, I turned over less than $3,000, you know, but I'd been on invalidity benefit when I was ill. And that's an interesting term in itself, isn't it? Invalidity. I was labeled an invalid. Think about that word, invalid. You know, I had all that. So when I just turned over $3,000 and my accountant sacked me and said, you're wasting my time. But in some respects, I'd, I'd kind of been three years without any money anyway, apart from this invalidity benefit I got from the UK government. But I just hung on in there. And there was a quote I came across in one of those many audio cassettes I listened to. And it said this, this is a paraphrase, within every adversity is a seed of equal or greater opportunity. 
And you know what? I have this little phrase, words can change worlds. Words can change worlds. And you know, those words resonated with me. I thought I'm going through some real adversity here, but is there a seed of opportunity? And, and like anything that grows, it didn't grow overnight. Yeah, I'm, I've sold over a quarter of a million books, 13 countries. You know, I've worked with, you know, I've even worked with Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I had an opportunity to speak at a conference with him in Australia back in 2008. There's lots of good things that have happened, but can I just make it clear? I've been in business 30 years now. 1991, when I signed off Invalidity Benefit and turned over $3,000, the equivalent in the first year. And it's a seed. And the thing is, the seed's growing, but you don't always see it because it's beneath the soil. But it's growing. And things were happening. And I guess my, my passion for personal development was, in a sense, the sunshine and the water for the seed. And, and now maybe some people say you've created a bit of a nice garden there, Paul. But it didn't happen overnight, that's for sure. Right, right. And I adore, I mean, I adore that you mentioned that because, you know, we live in this world of social media where everything's so glamorized and everything seems to happen overnight and oh seven figures in six months like all this guru craziness and really it takes time right yeah i think there are some you know i always say behind everyone's glory there's always a story but you don't always see the journey to get there you don't see the the sleepless nights and you know, and 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 sometimes the, the failed relationships because that are left behind in the wake of people's pursuit of success. And the other thing to think about, which is something I've been thinking a lot about recently, is people think that when I'm successful, then I'll be happy. And, and that isn't always the case, you know. That was a narrative I bought into for a long time. And Sean Acor, I think, wrote the book, The Happiness Advantage. He's, he talked about the fact that actually, you no. Know, when you're happy, then you'll be successful. Yet we're sometimes told you've got to be achieve, 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 and then you'll be happy. And, and I'm like thinking, well, it's great to try and achieve, but maybe we could be happy now. We don't, happiness is not, you know, I'm sorry to, you know, to challenge the American constitution and, you know, you know, I don't know, the pursuit of happiness is it's like, what? Well, so this is something you, you find eventually. Well, you know, maybe it's not a place to get to. Maybe it's something to experience right here right now and you don't have to have achieved anything or gone anywhere you can just wake up and re recognize wow i'm alive i've got eyes to see ears to hear i'm breathing i'm above ground there's challenges but it's okay amen paul seriously amen because a lot of the time you know it's like oh when i get here you know, I'll be happy when, once I make this amount of money, I'll be. And it's like, what people don't realize is that you get to a certain level and then you want more and then you want more. There is never, never a, a space of like full gratitude. And that what you just said was very important. Stay in the now, be grateful. Now that Absolutely. is what the game. That is you what and, and it is interesting because I, you know, I, I read a lot around neuroscience and now a visiting professor at the University of Chester in the northwest of England. Although when I say I'm a visiting professor, I always like to clarify two things. Number one, I don't visit very often. And number two, someone said to me recently, what are you professor in? Common sense. And I went, 
Thanks for your feedback, Mum. That's much appreciated. But um, I do have a continual. What I talked about on that University of Wheels and audio cassettes in the early 90s, it's never changed. I am still consuming. I want to sharpen the saw, as Covey would say. I am listening to podcasts. I am reading. I am listening. I'm, I'm tapping into ancient wisdom from Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Stoicism. I'm like, whoa, I love the way some people go, oh, that's a bit, what are you all into that kind of stuff for? You know, neuroscience has proven, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what, sometimes neuroscience particularly has proven, it's confirmed the wisdom of the ancients, they were spot on. That's what it confirms. It's just given us a new language in the scientific evidence. But so I, I go to the old and I consume the new. I'm constantly trying to just think, okay, how do I feed myself? Because in a sense, I guess, you know, I'm trying to nourish your mind. I'm trying to nourish your heart and your soul. And you do that metaphorically with the food that you give people, but you've got to have something to give. And and so I very much want to invest in me and feed me so that I'm in a position to feed others. But to use um, a story from from one of the gospels, I still do feel that at times I'm like the little boy who goes, okay, I've got a few fish and a little bit of bread and that's all I've got. And it's like the divine, the universe, God, whatever language you want to use goes, yeah, okay, that's good. We'll do something with that. We'll multiply it. And it's just like, you just show up with your loaves and your fishes and you think this is not a lot. Okay, but but offer it up anyway. Give your gift away, whatever that gift is, however small or ordinary it might seem. Give it away. And you never know something beyond us, the transcendent, that transcends us and our minds. Maybe breathes a bit of life into that and and gives it a power of its own and, and a momentum that you could never have achieved by yourself. It's not easy to quantify, but I just don't believe that we're just molecules and atoms and protons, et cetera. I think there's a bit more to it than that. Absolutely. And also too, you mentioned Sumo a little bit. I definitely want to get into your brand, your books, and and then talk about what's coming next for you. Because I know within those, there's so much spirit of you in there and your experiences. So I'd love to hear, love to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, Sumo is an acronym. So my business evolved from being like a trainer, a coach, to some people say, could you speak at a conference? And let's just be very, very clear about this. I could do a two-day training course for a company, and then they might want me to then speak at a conference for an hour, but it would have a load more people in the room. And they, and suddenly they're paying you more to speak for an hour than they were to do a training course for, for two days. And I realized Lots of people can run workshops and can facilitate. There's some amazing people out there. But the ability to hold an audience in the palm of your hand, make them laugh, make them think and inspire them is not something that maybe there's as many people who are able to do that, Uh, particularly in the UK. I think there's more in the US. There's something about the, the American mindset and maybe your education system. But the British can be a bit reserved and a bit very self deprecating. But and I just saw that, okay, I'm now getting an opportunity to speak at some large events, but I go back to what I alluded to earlier on. I have an interesting backstory. It's a varied backstory, but at the end of the day, what we love in Britain is we love celebrities. Show me your gold medals. Show me your TV series. Show me the picture of you 
on top of Everest. Show me with you going work walking unaided to the North Pole. And I've got none of that. So I guess one of the things that I did take as a strategic decision was, well, what could I do? I could start to write and write books because the words author of, those just those two words can give me some credibility. I mean, this professor title, I've only had it for 18 months. So the majority of my business career, I've had no real title, no amazing backstory, no celebrity status. But you know what? If you're a celebrity, let me talk about the UK here. You can be an average speaker. In fact, you can be a, a below par speaker, but you've got your gold medal. You've got that video to show you of, of something. And the audience tolerate the fact that you weren't a great speaker because you got this amazing story and you're well known and they can pose for photos with you at the end. But Paul McGee, I have not got the safety net of celebrity to fall back on. So I've had to work massively hard at developing my material and developing a way to communicate it in an inspiring and engaging way. And, and I'm actually glad on one level that I've not been a celebrity because it made me work harder. And I think I'm a better communicator. Hopefully I'm a better person because I know everything I've achieved. No one's handed it to me on a plate. Mm. I've, I've had to go out and make it happen and compete in a world where doors are open for celebrities. Some of the podcasts in the UK are of celebrities interviewing other celebrities. And I'm just like, fine, you give me a door, you're not going to open it. I'm going to push the thing. I'm going to keep pushing. And I'm pushing because I feel passionate about what I've got to say. And, and the books have, have, have opened doors for me. My, my SUMA book, SUMA was an acronym. It can stand for shut up, move on. Well, that's what the title of the book was, shut up, move on. Not as aggressive as it sounds. A lot of the shut up bit was more shut up, take time out, stop, think, reflect, you know, shut up those ways of thinking that are holding you back and move on to different ways of thinking. It can also stand for stop, understand, move on, which some people just find a little bit easy. But that's the book that that really set the ball rolling for me. Someone in Australia read the book. They said, we're having a conference with Stephen Covey as the main speaker, but I've read your book. I reckon the audience would love your material. Would you like to come over and speak? You'll be on the same, you'll be actually speaking on the same day as Stephen Covey. In fact, not just on the same day, but literally he'll open the conference. He'll walk off stage and you'll follow him on. And they were telling me all of this, by the way, Pamela, because they were basically saying we've spent virtually all our budget on him. So we can hardly pay you anything, but we'll fly you out to Australia. We'll give you five nights free accommodation and, and you will be in the program next to him. And I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. And I got about 10, 15 minutes one on one time with Stephen Covey as part of that experience. And why did that happen? Because I wrote a book and I don't type really. So do you know what I do? I write my books longhand with a pen and with paper and then get my PA to type them up. And there I was, 2004, you know, on a kitchen table and I'm writing this book and it comes out in 05. It does pretty well. It opens a few doors. And in 2008, I speak at the same conference as Stephen Covey. But again, it's the seed. You don't see, you don't see the flowers immediately but I'm doing stuff behind the scenes. I'm working, I'm persevering, I'm working out. This isn't happening. I've got to quit certain things. Sometimes it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Have the courage to quit sometimes. I mean, there's certain times you need to quit, but then there's other things you go, no, no, no. 
This is important. I'll persevere on this one. This is not for quitting. Some things it's good to quit. Others, it's important to persevere. So the door, the books, yeah, they've helped people from all around the world. I love it. I love getting emails from people from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, literally from all around the world of people. And I love it, particularly when young people contact me who've read the book. It is incredibly humbling. So yes, it was a bit of a business strategy, but now I'm, I'm just blessed beyond belief when some stranger is no longer a stranger because they went, I just want you to know I read your book and it's really helped me. Now, is everyone a fan of my books? No. Do I still get the odd Amazon, Amazon review? It's a one star. Of course I do. But at the end of the day, if you want to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. And that is a guaranteed way to avoid criticism. Well, I ain't buying into that narrative. And therefore, you always open yourself up to be criticised when you go for it. And that's what's happened sometimes. But fortunately, lots of people have loved the stuff as well. I adore it, Paul. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, you've continued to write on 12 more past that book, yeah? Yeah, well, I'd written a few actually in the 90s. Sumo was the pivotal. It was the game changer. And since then, yeah, I've written several other books as well. And one of them actually that came out last October was aimed at young people called Yes, The Sumo Secrets to Being a Positive, Confident Teenager. And thrilled with that because that took me out of my comfort zone. I'd never written books aimed at young people before. I hired a brilliant illustrator and she did a fantastic job. And we're not saying, we've, you know, J.K. Rowling can sit and relax. She's not going to be threatened with the sales figures. It's only 10,000 copies in, in seven months in the UK. But, you know, that's 10,000 kids who are maybe getting access to some ideas and inspiration that they maybe would not have had otherwise. And we're getting schools buying it by the hundreds. And um, that's got some longevity about it, that book. So it's good. It's good. And I'm just offering those loaves and fishes and seeing what can become of them. That's incredible. That's incredible. So you changed the style and basically you were speaking to teenagers in that one. Yeah. And do you know what I did? And this is, again, I think a real important trait for everyone. It, it, I would say stay humble, stay hungry. And there I am, this Sunday Times bestseller, like I said, the equivalent of a New York Times bestseller. And But I'm writing a book aimed at young people. And so do you know what I do? I, I get myself almost like a, an advisory board. So on that advisory board are head teachers, you know, principals. I'm obviously talking to parents. I'm obviously drawing my own experience. And I basically got, I think it was 10 children, 10 young people aged between 10 and 18 to read the first draft and to give me their opinion. And one of them was, was a son of a friend of mine. And he said, Paul, it was really funny because he said, because he knows you, he knows of you, he knows you've seen your books. We've been on a holiday. We've seen your books in the airport. And he says, and I say to him, Max, you know, Paul McGee, my friend. And Max is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We see his books in airports. Well, he's writing another book, Max. All right, great. And he's aimed at young people. Oh, great. And he wants you to read it. And to tell him what you think of it. And like Max is like blown away. But if he's going to be my intended reader, because I'm, the books are probably relevant from children age nine onwards. I just thought, well, I need to not just go, I know how to do this. No, I, I need to ask kids what they think of it. And then some of the stuff they said was, yeah, that's really good. That's funny. Keep it in. And then there's other bit they're going, you've got to take that one out. That is such a dad joke. 
it has to go. And so stay humble, stay hungry. I find it's a pretty good um, strategy for life, really. Absolutely, absolutely, Paul. And you have a new book coming out. Indeed, yeah, it's my 13th. I tell you, I don't get out much. All I do is speak at events and podcasts <laughs> and write. And remember, I write longhand, so it flipping takes me ages. But this one's been a slightly easier one to do in some ways, as well as more difficult, because how can it be easier and difficult? Because I've co-authored the book with, with someone else, a, a mate of mine who actually was inspired by my sumo book. It really had a big impact on him. He'd written children's books. He did like things the other way around to me. But he's, um, he's now a doctor and got a PhD. Uh, and he studied human flourishing and happiness. And wow. so we've got and Dr. Andy Cope and Professor Paul McGee have come join forces to write a book called The Happiness Revolution a manifesto for living your best life. And we've really, you know, Andy's probably looked at the academic stuff more than I would, but we've combined forces. And I think hopefully between us, we've written, you know, is this my best book because I wrote it with someone else? Possibly. We'll, we'll see what the, uh, the readers think of it anyway. And so that's great. I'm really excited about that one. And it's been good to collaborate with someone else rather than have to take on all the burden and the pressure yourself that's incredible paul we look forward to that one coming out i i'm sure it's going to be another sunday bestseller sunday times bestseller who knows who knows but anyway i just hope it's whether it becomes a bestseller or not i guess of course your ego would like that but in some ways if it became a bestseller all that is really is an indication a lot of people have hopefully bought it and read it and if they bought it and read it hopefully it's helped them and that's the big buzz for me. Of course, the ego can feel a bit of joy when you see yourself in the bestsellers list. Of course, that's good. But the numbers aren't really there for my ego. The mm. numbers are going, wow, look how many people are starting to read this and hopefully be helped. Because there's a lot of books on happiness, a lot of great books on happiness. But Andy and I have taken a, a both a scientific and also a very gritty and grounded perspective on happiness we're, we're quite controversial in parts about it, but I just think people will find it a very, very authentic, real book that isn't saying it's what our goal is to be happy all the time. Actually, it's not. And if you were happy all the time, you'd be flipping weird. Let me tell you. <laughs> Agreed, Paul. Agreed. I'm so excited for that one to come out. And, you know, with your wisdom, with your experience and everything, I wanted to ask you, because this is like the number one question that I always ask is... What would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? I think I think I would go back to what I said before, that an analogy of snakes and ladders. There's going to be some snakes and you're going to be OK. And, and actually, if you're going to win the game, you will come across some snakes. So setbacks are not the end of the story. I think I'd say that. I think I'd also say to my younger self, and it's a cliche, I get that, but enjoy the journey don't enjoy the journey enjoy it not everyone gets to speak at the sydney convention center in australia with stephen covey not everyone gets to be called a visiting professor not everyone gets to speak in 41 countries so don't just it's not a tick list of achievements it's it's an experience that you are privileged to have had and allow yourself to enjoy it because 
Pamela, I have fallen into that trap of I'll be happy when dot, dot, dot. And you know what? I'd lean into my younger self and I would say it's sometimes snakes and ladders and you'll land on some snakes, but you're going to be okay. Allow yourself to be happier and enjoy the journey. And, And a third one, you're okay, mate. I know part of what has fueled your desire to do what you've done is maybe to find external validation and to overcome some of the stuff that you faced as a child. But you know what? You're just okay anyway. Not because of what you achieved, but just for being here on this planet, you're okay. And so be kind to yourself on this journey. Practice compassion with yourself and with others. So those would be the three things I think I'd say to my younger self and whether my younger self would make any sense of that, I don't know. But I think that I think that third one's really important, you know. I think we can we don't speak to our friends like we speak to ourselves. And I think we we can be constructive in our and challenging still in our kindness. It's not about giving ourselves an easy ride, but I am learning to just berate myself less and just to be challenge myself, but but do it from a, a kind, compassionate place rather than a self-hatred place, which is where I have been previously. Yes. Amen, Paul. No, I mean, I can completely relate. You know, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, you know, all these different, it happens to us. It happens to the best of us too. It's just like, uh, you get caught in that trap. You got to remember to be present, be present here, like you said. And I just appreciate all your wisdom and all your awesomeness. And now you've got to let everyone know where to find you and your amazing self. That's really kind. If you go to my website, thesumoguy.com, you can access a lot, including on there, there's a link to my YouTube channel. So if you've liked some of what I've said today, then you can always access some short videos. If you haven't liked what I've said today, you can still access the videos and then send them to other people as a form of punishment. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, and it's the same name, which is at the sumo guy on Twitter and at the sumo guy on Insta. And I connect with people quite a lot that way. So LinkedIn, Insta and Twitter. And, and you might find me if you just put Paul McGee and look for some weird looking bloke, you might find me on Facebook as well. You're incredible. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate you and just so excited for you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It's, um, it is really, it is a pleasure Absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode.